Welcome to the Learner.co show, hosted by Kevin Horick and his fellow Learner co-founders. Listen in as groundbreaking leaders discuss what they've learned. Discover the books, podcasts, presentations, courses, research, articles, and lessons that shape their journey. To listen to past episodes and find links to all sources of learning mentioned, visit learner.co. That's learner with two L's, dot co. Well, John and Greg, what are you most excited to learn from Jim today? Oh, I'm looking forward to the interview. Um, I'm especially interested as he was the CEO of SendGrid for, for, uh, for a while. And uh, that'll be really interesting because we come from a background of a, uh, as an email service provider. So I'm really interested in, in what he has to say about that. Um, it's, uh, he's also been involved in the, in the Boulder, Colorado tech scene for a while. And that's a really dynamic um, startup scene. So I'm interested to hear about that as well. Um, and I'm sure, I, and what he's learned along his, uh, his journey. Well, John, you stole my thunder on, on both those points because they're, they're super, that's all close to my heart too. Like the, the email side of it for me personally is really uh, a, a fun connection. Um, and the Boulder, you know, I got to say, I'll show my age here. When I hear Boulder, Colorado, I still think Mork and Mindy actually, which is not at all what it's about these days. <laughs> so anyone old enough listening will also remember Mork and Mindy. Maybe. But um but the thing about Boulder is it has got a really cool tech scene and some really great ideas have come out of there. And some, you know, that it's like a, I don't know, like a school of thought coming out of there of how to, how to build tech companies. Um, and, and basically a lot of people that, that are a bit contrarian, I guess, in a, in a way, and will try things in different directions um, that are new and different. And, and I, you know, that always, gets me interested. So I'm curious what, what he's going to have to say for sure. All right, on with the show. Welcome back to the learner.co show. Today we have Jim Franklin. He's an LP for early stage Colorado tech funds and the former SendGrid CEO. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you've done in your career and tech is really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. I was born in Iowa, uh, raised in Pennsylvania okay. in a small town. Uh, I guess what was unusual about my upbringing uh, was I had a very normal family. <laughs> okay, well, that's <laughs> my, good. <laughs> my parents were high school sweethearts and they, you know, they're great. Uh, I think I won the parent lottery um, and I have a brother who's a year older and we had uh, different strengths. So we got along uh, as kids and um, he was a good student and all that and kind of paved the way uh, for me, like going through school. Right. If your older brother's, you know, president of the class, that sets one thing. If they're always in trouble, that sets another. And so I got some, a nice draft. So I think uh, uh, we talk a lot about privilege these days. And boy, I feel like uh, I have been, you know privilege so many times over uh it's hard to uh hard to count them all great role models in the various coaches and teachers and uh, guidance counselors and various people i've had along the way so um very very fortunate uh, but i went to uh went to school at uh, the college of william mary which is in virginia okay. uh, and i looked at schools for two years and um 
really it was uh, the people I knew who were graduates uh, okay. from that school. I thought were just like good people, just like kind and nice. Um, and when I got to the campus, I'm like, like this is beautiful. This is for me. And I applied early decision, and I got in, and I stayed eight years, wow. and got th three degrees. <laughs> okay, what did you take, and why? Yeah, well, I took uh, accounting okay. uh, because it was one of the top programs in the country. I think they were fifth in the country. Wow. Uh, and the accounting major was considered to be very difficult. And as you know, it's fun to do difficult things, right? That's sure. why we climb mountains and all that stuff. But I had no particular intention of being an accountant. I didn't really know what one was, actually. I just knew it was like math, but not that hard. Uh, and so that was, <laughs> that was a good balance, right? I like business, uh, business math. Uh, but I, William Mary is an excellent undergrad uh, liberal arts institution. And so I uh, accidentally uh, took a lot of business classes and didn't do as much of the liberal arts side as I, I thought. Uh, I thought it'd be fun uh, with one of my free electives to take uh, the investments course from the finance major. Uh, and okay. that was their big gut check hard course. <laughs> and so as an accounting major, I thought, huh, you know, on my free time, I'll go do your hard work. Uh, again, because it was hard, it would be fun. And I did the same thing over in the English department and took a writing course, which was uh, you know, like a junior level art course. Interesting. <laughs> so that was uh, that was fun uh, to do. But I, I yeah, I didn't I didn't want to be an accountant when I was a senior. Uh, and the, the accounting <laughs> program you know takes you through a you know like this lockstep thing where all you know, the big firms come in and interview and they'd love to hire William Mary grads and I didn't see my future as a accountant in D.C. or or something. Uh, so I applied to law school. Uh, because law school is basically reading and writing, which balances out all that addition and subtraction you do in accounting land. Uh, and so I went to law school at Mary and stayed there. And um, because I was dating someone, to be honest, right, who was a year behind me in school. And uh, that worked out well. Um, but uh, I got to law school and I hated it. Uh, interesting. Because Why? Oh, because the people are not quantitatively oriented. Ah, and so we would have arguments in a contorts class about, you know, uh, what should a automobile, uh, how, how uh, what measures should automobile manufacturer take to you know, make sure that their gas tanks are safe in an accident? And you implicitly have to value a human life. And a lot of the students would be like, oh, human life is like just, you know, infinitely valuable. So, you know, they got to do all this stuff. And I'm like, well, you know, if you really think it's infinitely, your life is infinitely valuable, that means like you're saying they have to do like everything possible. Like cars would be super heavy and get bad gas mileage and look bad and all this other stuff, right? And be super expensive and don't could drive one. And, you know, there's people wouldn't recognize sort of trade-offs. And I kind of missed my uh, accounting friends who were, you know, a quantitatively oriented bunch. And so uh, I ended up applying to the MBA program. Actually, I was in my contracts final that first semester and I walked out of it <laughs> so I was like oh I hate this class uh, and I got a drink of water and I thought well you know good life lesson you should finish what you start and I started law school so I'm going to finish it and I started this exam so I'm going to go back and finish it but the only part I liked about the exam was calculating the damages you know doing doing a little bit of light math <laughs> in there so I applied to the MBA program and uh, you know I just got my accounting the school was happy to have me back and it was in the MBA program where I found my people uh, okay. And I was just like, ah, they're, you know, quantitatively oriented, but like in an MBA school, you get to be in a different industry in a different role, you know, like five times a week. And right. I just love that sense of dabbling and being, uh, you know, your VP of marketing at a cord bean company, you know, you have to figure out how to go sell contact lenses, the next thing, or you're just 
what are the, I loved all the, the casework and the, and the different studies. So I did the joint degree in four years. Uh, and so I really sort of um, had a very broad education. Also in the MBA programs, I learned about venture capital. Uh, I have a strong tendency to uh, not be bored. And okay. I like uncertainty. And I kind of move towards uncertainty. I, I move towards chaos a bit uh, <laughs> and not away from it, uh, which may be not a natural accountant, right? Accountants are backward looking and very into certainty. Uh, where finance people like in the MBA program are forward looking and are comfortable with uncertainty. Think of you know, spreadsheets doing all of your pro formas and that sort of thing uh, is very much sort of in my, uh, in my wheelhouse. And so I really liked uh, venture capital, wrote my industry paper on that as an MBA student. Uh, I got a very low grade with the professor said venture capital is not an industry, which back then was probably pretty true. Uh, this would have been like 1990. Uh, and I think the uh, global capital, venture capital in all of the U.S. was about two to three billion dollars per year. <laughs> wow. And so okay. it's grown a bit. Sure. Um, but, you know, there is the supply and demand pricing. And, you know, it's, it's, there's some interesting stuff about the market tracing from, you know, say the 1950s forward. Uh, which I did in my paper. Uh, it has to do with lag, actually, how humans aren't good with lag. We tend to associate cause and effect with time. Like, yeah. Think about teenagers smoking a cigarette. Like, hey, I'm not getting cancer. I'm fine, right? I smoked one today. No problem. Uh, I don't smoke, but like, I like cheeseburgers, right? So I'll have a cheeseburger. My thighs, oh, this tastes good. But like, <laughs> I'm going to have heart disease someday, right? It's, we, we don't, we're not good with, with, with lags. And so in the venture capital world, there's this big lag between when LPs make investments and you know, when routine returns mature, which is seven to 10 years later. And so let's just say if, if VCs are doing well today, they're showing high returns, uh, then that's really you know, investments that were made seven and 10 years ago. And so LPs, they'll be all excited and say, oh, we're gonna put money in the sector. Look at these good returns. And it's like the exact, usually the wrong time to do it because <laughs> it's 10 years later. You should have done it 10 years ago, right? Whatever the facts and circumstances were, you know, at that time, you know, where we are today here in 2021, we've been a long full cycle, but, you know, the last sort of great time, you know, to buy in as it were, you know, was uh, like 2009, you know, uh, 2010, because we were just on the backside of the 07, 08 recession. Right. And so prices were low, right? You want to buy low, sell high. There's some business advice, which people <laughs> tend to forget. Uh, and so if you can buy right, you know, then business is easy, but if you buy wrong, right. And if you're an investor paying, you know, 10, 30 X revenue, it's hard to make money, right? A lot has right. to continue to go right. Um, if you haven't learned what multiple compression is, <laughs> you will someday. And <laughs> you'll, you'll feel like it's a branding iron on your back. Like, oh, shit, right? Like, we tripled our business. Why are we worth more? Well, multiple compression, right? Just your sector is not worth a third of what it used to be. So tough. Um, so anyway, love venture capital. And that's why I ended up in Boulder uh, because I also got involved in triathlons when I was doing that JD MBA program back in 1991. Uh, okay. And I wanted to do triathlons just as an amateur, but I really was into it. And so Boulder is a world headquarters for that. And there's a tiny bit of venture capital, even in the early 90s in Boulder. And I thought, I want to go and get involved in, in venture capital. But that's not exactly how it worked out. Interesting. So walk us through your career, maybe some highlights along the way, because you've been through a bunch of acquisitions. You were the CEO of SendGrid, which I think everybody's in the tech space has heard of you. And for, like you mentioned before, probably everybody on the planet's got a SendGrid email many times and they probably don't even know it. Yep, maybe we could, uh, uh, I'm kind of walk backwards. Like, so how did I become the SendGrid CEO? I wasn't by applying for some job. 
and I didn't get okay. promoted into it. Um, okay. I had done basically, I've been very active in the uh, Boulder, Denver community for probably 24 years at that point. And okay, I was wow. well known by the investor community. So how did I get well known by the investor community? Well, when I showed up here when I was 26, um, I had you know no money, had a good education, um, and it was handy with spreadsheets. Uh, and I I had one referral, Jeff Rudolph at Cooper's and Librand. Uh, okay. And so I met him and he said, you should go to Rocky's Venture Club. So I did that the next month. And then the people at Rocky's are smart to say, oh, you know, grabbed me by the scruff and said, come here, right? You know, why don't you volunteer for us and help us run our club? I'm like, awesome. And it was a perfect uh, venue to get to know people. And so I could be on the membership committee. I'd call people who attended for the first time and say, hey, why'd you come? Why don't you come next time? Or people who didn't renew. And I'd say, hey, you know, why didn't renew? You know, what, what's going on? Uh, I was on the sponsorship committee. So I'd call all the lawyers and bankers and say, hey, would you, re you know, renew? And they'd say, well, you know, tell us about your programs coming up. And, you know, we'd be happy to renew. And, uh, and then I was on the programs committee. So I'd call the VCs and say, hey, would you come speak on our panel about, you know, how to raise money in these times? And uh, they'd say, sure, I'd love to, right? And, you know, because we were good at putting butts in seats. And, like, the sponsors, you know, were happy to write checks because they were busy billing clients for stuff. And the VCs, you know, they never write checks. Uh, but, you know, they're happy to, you know, be on panels and stuff and, you know, help get their brand out there and increase their uh, pipeline. And then I would call all the successful entrepreneurs who'd raised money or sold a company and say, hey, why don't you come, you know, why don't you come down to our program and tell us your story? You know, how'd you raise that money? How'd you sell your company? And of course, everyone's happy to talk about, sure. <laughs> talk about those sorts of things. And so, uh, yeah, I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anyone here. So this kind of became my life. Uh, and this was my social network. Uh, I was on the government affairs committee. I'll put air quotes around that. Which really, that was just me and three other guys drinking beer in Lodo and complaining about the government. Uh, and that one, you know, just that hasn't changed, right? Except maybe it's more people. Um, and I don't, I don't know. Government, I, I like our government, especially in Colorado. We've had good Democratic and Republican governors and it's a great, great place to do business. Uh, but, you know, we can all complain about uh, something uh, sure. on that score. <laughs> uh, but it was it was a great way just to be to, you know, to be known. And so I started off, uh, you literally just had to pay bills. I, I waited tables in school. I was like, I always wait tables, I need to pay rent. Uh, but I got a job through Robert Hoff Account Temps doing some spreadsheet work for a couple of different companies around town to do taxes and some other things, but just, you know, kind of pay the rent. I lived in a cash rent, you know, no credit check kind of place in Capitol Hill on East Denver. Um, and that's kind of where you start. Um, because I think every, here's a lesson is that everyone has something to give. And if you're in that stage of life, you have your time to give, right? You need to find a role in the ecosystem or create one. And um, so I was giving my time. I was learning a lot about all the different facets of, uh, venture capital. Uh, I chaired the Colorado Capital Conference a number of years where we would run sort of like a whole day of curriculum around angel to exit, just sort of like, you know, early stage finance around what's the role of a banker and you know, what about friends and family financing and, you know, are angels real, right? <laughs> you know, sure. Gray angels, right? Right. And, uh, what about local VCs? What about, you know, coastal VCs? What about corporate venture? Just, you know, kind of all the one-on-one on that uh, stuff and the role of investment bankers versus commercial bankers. Uh, and then, you know, what about an exit, you know, and, uh, and then life pokes that exit. And then on the other side of the conference, we would uh, actually, you know, do a pitch event where we'd have, uh, you know, vetted good speakers, you know, give eight or eight or 10 pitches, uh, which was great. Uh, but every month we'd run a program where we'd have like three five minute presenters. And those five minute presenters uh, by design was like maybe the first time they've ever pitched their idea. 
Uh, we were pitching in Denver, so we had a lot of uh, you know, female people of color, you know, pitching for the first time. And we might get criticized, you know, because the pitches weren't very good, right? Because they weren't curated. Uh, because Rockies was a volunteer organization. I had the you know day job. I had to cobble together, you know, rent every month and whatnot. And I can't be out, you know, coaching that many people every month to get a, you know to get you know quote unquote good pitches. But they were authentic, and I think those are some of the better pitches. I love tech stars, but boy, they're so good at getting people ready to pitch. You have to kind of unpack all the polish to figure out, you know, is the there there. Uh, I think uh, tech stars has the same good pitch, which it looks like a horrible pitch when Isaac, uh, the founder, gave it because he's an engineer. And I always think that the best pitches are the bad pitches. And the good pitches, they might be good pitches, but, you know, you never know. Because if you have a polished MBA given a pitch, it'll always sound good. Uh, and the trick is to find the good ideas that look like bad ideas. Um, How so, do you figure that out, though? Or what's the advice around trying to figure that out? So two things. Um, you know, uh, so traction is an overused word. But, you know, with Sanger, it was obvious early. Uh, two months before they even incorporated, they had 10000 a month of revenue coming in the door, cash, going wow. to the founder's PayPal account. And he was just giving money to friends who were able to work on it, right? So no structure. <laughs> Love Isaac. Uh, but that 10000 their first month, grew rapidly from there. So when I became CEO, I don't know, 18 months later, the revenue every month, cash revenue in the door was going up 100000 a month. Wow. Yeah. So think 300000 in June, 400000 in July, 500000 in August, those sorts of numbers, right? So if you have a company, <laughs> you know, that is growing like that, you know, that sort of puts you at the, the top of the, uh, the top of the pile. The other, uh, I think, rule I have seen used by, I think, our good investors is sort of, I'll call it the smartest person in the room. We'll use Techstar as an example. Uh, back in the day when they're getting started, it was called the bunker. And they literally had 10 companies, you know, all in the same physical space, one sort of big room. And they all had their little problems they were working on, you know, and, and, whenever one team of, you know, two or three people would have a hard problem, you know, who within that bunker was like the go-to person for solving the hardest problems. Uh, and that year that Isaac was in that bunker, he was that guy. Got and it. so that's where like the, the early investors said, we may not know why it makes any sense to invest in an email company, you know, in 2009, even then it seemed dated and weird. Um, when it seemed like really, we're going to keep doing email for another, you know, in number of years and it's like yeah um but yeah it was really the rise of cloud computing right that sent was sure. a cloud infrastructure company and what was happening in 09 and 2010 was you know the rise of the cloud and so if you could buy low on that trough after the 0708 recession recession um uh you know then you just had these booming companies uh uber's pre-money was four million dollars uh, i was fortunate enough to be in a fund with david cohen that was an investor in that company wow. and you know it becomes worth like $89 billion today. Uh, you know, and so, yeah, uh, pre-monies aren't what they used to be. But if you can find growth companies like Pinterest and Booking and all those people uh, that were SendGrid customers, is basically all those cloud companies uh, just use SendGrid as, as infrastructure. Because frankly, Amazon made the market. Uh, and I think that the, the best, best growth strategy out there um, is to go where the growth is. Uh, and you know, inventing growth is super hard. I would never recommend that. But Amazon basically made the cloud possible. 
and they just left a big hole, which is that sending email from the Amazon cloud like didn't work reliably. It would go lost or missing, and Amazon had no support function to follow up with people on, hey, where'd my mail go? And so Isaac and Tim, as co primary co-founder, you know, you know, they had a big business plan to go do something else. But like, oh, first, let's take a couple of weeks. We'll set up this little email relay. We'll pick up stuff from Amazon. You know, basically launder the IP addresses through our servers and send it on to uh, recipients so they can get their mail. And they set it up. And of course, that turned into the big business. Uh, so another little pro tip is sometimes it's the little business inside the big business, the purported big business, which is the interesting part. So I hear a pitch and someone's pitching me their big idea. Let's call that A. I'm always listening for the small but compelling you know, thing that might be, you know, the real business. And that seems to be a pattern that shows up uh, from time to time. Interesting. So how did you become the SendGrid CEO then? Uh, Brad Feld. So I moved to Boulder in 92. Brad moved here in 95. Um, I knew we never worked together directly on anything. We both knew who each other were because he's famous. And I did enough stuff around Boulder that, you know, he knew who I was. Right. Uh, and I had been a CEO before <laughs> at, at Decisionary that did spreadsheet you know, projection software stuff, which was really awesome and very aligned with what I like to do. We sold that to Oracle. Uh, I stayed at Oracle for almost four years uh, right. and I did a self-retirement back in 2010. Um, and I didn't know what to call it. And uh, one of the people, you know, when you do something like that and kind of quit a job like that, everyone's like, hey, you know, congratulations on quitting. And uh, I called it gainfully unemployed. Uh, what are you going to do next? I'm like, I don't know. And they said, are you retired? I'm like, eh, I'm not comfortable with that word, but I'm not sure. What, I, I just don't need to work for three or five years. My kids are young and I don't know. I'm going to do what I always do, which is hang around Boulder and Denver and help people start things. Um, and so in one of those meetings that I met with Brad and Brad's like, oh, oh I have the word for it. You're on sabbatical, right? <laughs> I said, oh yeah, that's right. Because he goes, that's just a part of the journey, right? It's like whether your thing fails or it works, you know, or you just need to switch directions. You can, he goes, he says, take a year, right? I'd been involved in this math software for more or less 10 years. I was known as the crystal ball guy. And it's like, okay, you know, maybe kind of shed that persona and there'll be something cool and fun to do. So once you take a year, I like to run and do the triathlons and stuff. So like, just go do that and hang out with your family. And then when you want to do something, you know, let's, let's get together like a year from now and we'll find something, you know, fun to go do. And I'm like, all right. So A, that sounds good. And then B, I like that term sabbatical. So when I had the rest of my, you know, coffees and lunches and stuff through uh, that fall, I'd say, oh, I'm on sabbatical. Well, let's just say 30 days later, Brad called. <laughs> and he said, forget what I told you. I've got a deal for you. We gave these guys Sengrid five million bucks a year ago. They haven't spent a nickel on it. They're doing great. They're three blocks in your house. And uh, Amazon's now going to compete with them directly. And the founder, super good guy. But, you know, competitive uh, response, you know, is not part of his toolkit. Now, he's an excellent, you know, uh, founder and uh, technical person and, uh, and many, many other things. Uh, but, yeah, you know, competitive response and dealing with lawyers and accountants and just all the, I'll call it the mundane problems of scaling. You know, it, you know good news, it's working. Like, oh, shit, right? <laughs> whole another set of problems, right, around uh, of things. And that just was not his jam. And so he was happy to uh, bring in a CEO and. Um, so I just, I met with uh, Isaac and the two co-founders uh, out in Riverside uh, and then the board members through that fall. And uh, I was actually training to do the Leadville 100. Uh, it was a big project, uh, run hundred miles up in Leadville. And, That's cool. um, and uh, I told the second grade people, I said, well, I want to start in next September, which is like nine months from now. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, well, why don't you start earlier than that? So we 
I started uh, March 1st, uh, which was uh, six months I had off from Oracle, but you know, that was, that was good enough. And so, uh, yeah, dove into, dove into Sengrid, but it's just that I was a known quantity. So when, you know, the Sengrid board was sitting around thinking like, who would be a good leader that would pair well culturally with this team, has the right amount of scale experience that I had, uh, uh, had the for, uh, I, I had had the learning experience of uh, spending five million dollars of venture money before, uh, not successfully, I might add. Uh, <laughs> when I was a founder, we raised five million. We blew it in a year, literally five quarters, all gone, complete wipeout. Yeah. Uh, but we did it well, uh, and uh, the people who uh, backed us, that was at Web Families, uh, was Sequel Ventures primarily in Boulder. Um, when that all kind of imploded, I stuck around to sell the assets and do that kind of stuff, uh, and they were really gracious and nice. And I thought I'd go get a job doing a finance stuff and you know, for someone else. And they said, uh, well, we just gave two and a half million bucks to this company down in the tech center doing security software. Uh, why don't you go down uh, there and do your thing down there? And I said, well, sure, I don't have a job and <laughs> I'm glad you guys aren't mad at me for losing all your money. And they said, no, you know, that's like, well, first of all, it's not our money, right? It's LB money. Um, and even them, it's not their money. Uh, it's widows and orphans, right? They put money into things that LPs get hold on. At any rate, um, so I go down there and I, I just said, well, what's my thing again? And they said, you know, the spreadsheets <laughs> and the people part. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, I'll go do that. So I was the CFO uh, down at Verisept, which was then called PSNF. Um, and uh, yeah, I've kind of got their house in order and raised money and hired a CEO. Uh, and then that person fired me. Uh, so I was there two years. I did all this stuff, right? And I was like, oh, man. And uh, that's one of my lessons on how you become a CEO is like, don't be great at your job. You know, I think we talk to like MBA students or mid-career people. They think, how do I become CEO? Like, I want to get promoted. Like, you know, I do well and I'll get promoted. I'll get promoted. I'll be a CEO. It's like, that's not really how it works. That's, I think it's probably better to be fired than being promoted. Uh, I have a little chart that shows my career. It's like up, down, up, down, up, down, right? It generally goes up, but the downs go below like the zero line every time. It's not fun. Um, but I was finally fired. I was fired in, in '03 um, from this, uh, from Veris at the CFO. And yeah, you know, I'm married, I kid, young kids. I'm like, oh, I probably shouldn't keep getting fired. So that's when I kind of you know, thought heavily about how do I interview so that I can gel with like a management team or a board as so I don't end up getting fired every every two or three years. And that's why I was reflecting on conflict to think about, well, I had conflict with my prior CEO uh, because he liked to play things close to the vest, just like uh, who knows what, like what's our cash balance, what's our burn rate. And I like to play things wide open. And I'm like, you know, cash balance is $400,000 or burn 100000 a month. And every employee knows that. And I tell them what we're going to do and how the job impacts it. And so fundamentally, too, it's a trust issue. I trust people with that information that they will be motivated in their jobs and be smart about, you know, their personal decisions. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> CEO was uh, concerned, I think, from his world experience is that when you give that information to certain people, they freak out and, you know, they might leave. And if they leave, that puts your business in a death spiral. And he doesn't want to kill the business by over-disclosing certain things. And so it's not irrational to do what he does or his approach. It's just, uh, I think with the, if I'm hiring people, I would hire people who it's safe to tell those balances uh, and what we're doing about it. And it's all part of part of the story. When uh, when we sold Decisioneering, uh, we hired an investment banker to run a process. And the first thing I did is I told the employees. I didn't ask for permission from the lawyers or the board or anyone else uh, because I knew they'd all freak out and say, don't tell people, right? We need to 
uh, you need to involve the company, right? Because people are going to come through asking questions. They need schedules on customers by color or whatever, right? Just all this junk. And, uh, and so they wanted me to tell the employees that these were OEM partnerships we were working on. And that's why there was all this extra work to do, which would be what? <laughs> You're lying. It would be not trusting your employees, right? I didn't trust my employees a lot. And so I just went in front of all hands meeting and I said, hey, we got some news. We hired a banker to run a process to, you know, sell the company. And I said, you know, and just like, you know, and I said, look, you know, I'm sure you guys all want to know, like, how does this affect me? Am I going to lose my job? Right. Is you, what's going to happen? Right. And I said, well, you know, let me tell you what's going to happen. Right. Is that uh, you're going to have to do your current job, you know, sell stuff, <laughs> answer support tickets, do accounting, whatever it is. And we're probably going to give you some extra work along the way. And honestly, I think this won't go anywhere. Uh, because we've done this three times before and the shareholders have a certain opinion about what they think their baby's worth and the world just doesn't seem to share that view. But occasionally we need to go through this exercise to, you know, see if that's still the case or not. Uh, and if that changes, I will let you know. And that was it. And people went back to their jobs, no big deal. But then when I told the board <laughs> what I did, oh, you know, F-bombs galore, right? I just like hold the phone, wave my ear or whatever. And like, okay, pass what are they going to do they can't do anything it's like you know let me run the company right i know how to manage those people and preserve the value i mean they were being uh again i get most companies maybe that doesn't work right that sure uh, but that company it worked and if i would have done the opposite and the people would have found out that i had sort of broken trust with that whole employee base that would have been very bad you know for the business value right and right we're selling actually to hyperion that's a good story um and we sold to Hyperion just as Hyperion was selling to Oracle. So I said we sold to Oracle, but not exactly. We sold to Hyperion where Godfrey Sullivan was the CEO. He's now more famous of being the CEO of Splunk, but he was pretty famous then as CEO of Hyperion. It was sold for two point some billion dollars to, to Oracle. Uh, but we were only in Hyperion for 29 days, the month of February. Wow. And I asked Godfrey, <laughs> I'm like, why did you buy us on the eve of selling to Oracle? And he's like, you know, it was like your people, right? We had this cultural fit. Uh, and we ran the business sort of due diligence ready. And you know, we had Arthur Anderson audits, you know, back when they were the best audit firm in the world, you know, Cooley, you know, all through our cap table, it was tight. We were actually profitable and paying dividends. So we had to have a tight cap table. We was writing checks against it, you know, at least quarterly or uh, every so often. And so when, when, when Hyperion looked at how we ran the business, they were just astonished. As a public company, they're looking at what we did and said, holy heck, you guys... Yeah, you were, we were very easy to digest. And he knew that we um, uh, did not have values aligned with our shareholders. Uh, and that's why we were, that's why we were selling the company. We got frustrated with each other. Um, anyway, so uh, Hyperion uh, bought us. And uh, uh, I remember I had lunch with him, like just before the acquisition. I said, so like for the acquisition, I'm not gonna work for you. I'm gonna work for this other guy, like one layer down. And I thought I would work for you. I thought that would be, you know, cool and fun. And he just said, no, he goes, I don't think that's best. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> I just sat there and kept ate my salad or whatever. I thought, okay, uh, I guess I don't get to work for Godfrey. But I didn't know, but he knew that his whole management team was being taken out uh, ah. in the acquisition. And so uh, I was the uh, last, the only business person standing. Uh, so I ended up being Mr. Hyperion. There were uh, the CTO and VP of uh, engineering went across. And so they ran the product side, but there wasn't anybody on the go to market side. So I ended up being the uh, general manager of the crystal ball business unit, which is my old, my business, uh, but the, a vice president for enterprise performance management, which was the Hyperion business. 
and had only been in Hyperion for 29 days. So that was exciting to learn the Hyperion uh, script, if you will, and to um, you know, go out and talk to customers and uh, press and whatnot as the sort of Hyperion person. Um, so yeah, that's why I ended up staying. I, I was a, got to see what it's like being on the inside of a, a big company instead of the, the small company either competing with or trying to sell to sell to well, a large large person. Very cool. So I'm curious, you've learned a ton of stuff, obviously, at in traditional learning ways, like getting your MBA and, and going to university and whatnot. Seems like you've also learned a ton of stuff just doing it. What advice or is there like books or courses or anything that you've leveraged to, to help you uh, through your journey? Yeah, so I'll put it into uh, two buckets. One is sort of the, the books media side. Uh, and so okay. uh, always been you know, lifelong learner, you know, voracious reader. Uh, and so people say, how do you find time to read? Well, the good news is I had about a 45 minute commute you know, every day for 17 years uh, between right. Boulder and Denver uh, and audiobooks. And right. so I would just rip through book after book after book. Uh, and that was very helpful. I also love like a, a physical book uh, that you can hold, especially I call them a plane ride book. Uh, between okay. if you live in Colorado, you're going to do work in you know San Francisco. And uh, I was there, you know, three weeks a month as part of the Oracle tenure. You fly back and forth, right? Mondays and Thursdays and ah. all that stuff. And so it's great to be able to pick up a book, you know, at takeoff and then put it, you know, either put it down or put it away uh, at landing, and and have gotten a sort of a good uh, a good point. And so um, I don't know if you have like uh, well, just so. Uh, Favorite book of all time would be, you know, Good to Great, Jim Collins, Boulder guy. But, uh, you know, just uh, I read that relatively late in my career. I thought, okay. oh, that's for big companies. Then I was like, ah, oh, man, that's great stuff uh, on, on so many uh, on so many levels. But that is not something that's easy to carry on a plane. Uh, it's a little harder to, uh, to digest and, and to be thoughtful uh, by. My favorite set of plane books have all the stuff to do with culture by Patrick Lencioni, uh, starting with Five Temptations of a CEO. Uh, which really all kind of rolls back to vulnerability, right? If you if you can personally handle and come from a point of vulnerability, that sort of enables you uh, to trust others and to be trusted. I call that a reflexive property, right? Is that I feel like if I put trust out in the world, I get trust back. If I put out distrust in the world, I get distrust back. Think about negotiating an NDA with someone, right? It's like, it shouldn't even be a thing. Uh, but it's like, you can just kind of tell like, oh, are we having to lawyer up here and be all formal? Is this... You know, if the other party, you know, coming from an orientation of high trust or low trust, that's a great lens to look at the world. Uh, a similar lens is sort of uh, scarcity versus plenty. Some people have a, just an orientation of scarcity and they feel like in a negotiation, if there's a nickel on the table, man, they've got to they sweep it to their side. And if you come from an orientation of plenty, which I do, then it's like, oh, I want you to have that nickel. Because I get, you know, joy or satisfaction. I think like the long-term relationship value if you're having that nickel will eventually benefit me, I guess, but you're really going to benefit this whole ecosystem. Like something good, it's almost like a chaos theory, right? It's just putting some good out there in the world that will just sort of come back around. Uh, sometimes I describe that as round in the other's favor. Okay, uh, interesting. So, so yeah, it's just, so whether it's negotiating with an employee for their salary or their option package or whatever it is, it's like, you know, don't try and frag your own team. I had a lot of conflict with the board who is putting all of these colors on a VP sales comp plan. It's like, oh, but what if he sells all just maintenance and not enough new license revenue of new logos, blah, blah, blah. And like, oh, it's just like, you know, rule one of sales comp, keep it simple. 
right? Because salespeople are going to be doing the math on their comp plan all the time. <laughs> you want them <laughs> selling. So make it simple. So they just have to you know, multiply seven times some number and they'll get their comp. You know, don't and just blend it all together, right? Whether it's services or renewals or whatever, new license, old license, just keep it simple. And 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 if they win and we look stupid, guess what? We're making millions on the back end because our shares are so much money because they crushed the revenue number, right? So who gives a shit right. if they make thousands more, even if it's hundreds of thousands more than they quote unquote should have if we weren't you know putting the screws to them on all these you know <laughs> all these <laughs> limit limiters. So I also tell CPO that sales managers, you know, like. Uh, that deal only lasts one year. <laughs> Come next year, we get to renegotiate, right? And, and if you know, if you have a tough year, you don't make your bonus. Well, then you know that year too shall pass, right? And we'll we'll adjust accordingly. Um, it, but interesting. I don't want to get, retrade your plan every quarter or every month. That's no fun um, no, for anybody. No, that that makes sense. So I'm curious, in your schooling or your MBA, oh. is there anything that you wish you learned, and is there anything that you maybe took that you thought was going to be irrelevant that was very important in your career? Yeah. Let me finish the other half of the, the your previous questions. Like there's sort right. of like books and media piece, but then there's this people piece. And this is what has probably been even more valuable, um, which is whenever I got a new role, when I became a CFO at 28, up through Rockies Venture Club volunteering, you know, someone said, hey, why don't you come be our CFO? We're restarting our company with a tech guy, you know, a sales guy, the founder, need someone to do everything else and why don't you do that i'm like okay um but now i'm a cfo but this uh eric the guy that hired me he says look you have no business being a cfo but here's what you're going to do is you're going to go meet three other cfos who are about 10 years older than you and you're going to take them to lunch and you buy lunch and you get to ask the first question and that has been like gold so again as a cfo yeah can i do accounting yeah kind of right can i do spreadsheets yeah pretty well but it's like, there's so much to the art of being a CFO, like how to put together a board packet when one board member likes to have like the Holy Bible written, just all this stuff. And the other person likes, you know, just the facts, man, super level, high level, you know, thematic. No matter what I did, I'd get yelled at by somebody. And, you know, a more veteran CFO, <laughs> he had that solved before the, you know, the iced teas are poured uh, at lunch. And I like to go to the Cheesecake Factory when it was uh, in Boulder and Denver. And so they have giant tables, they're not busy. And uh, everyone secretly likes to go there, but they never say that. Uh, and you can get wherever you want. Uh, but I would buy lunch. And I, was, I learned so much that way. That was so helpful. And what I love about our ecosystem here in Colorado is that every time I asked someone to lunch, they always said yes. And But I never really asked the same people twice because your, your advisors or mentors, I hate that word. You know, just friends, right? We're just friends. You're helping each other. And, we, and I'm sure they learned something at that lunch, too. Um, but I get to ask that, that first question. So when I was a CFO, I did that. When I became a VP of sales, having never been a sales rep, huh, you know, I had lots of questions, right? Like, why do you do a channel conflict and all this stuff? Uh, how do you figure out these comp plans? And, and so I would, again, getting you know, a, a group of people 10 years ahead of you, not too far, right? But not right. too close either, right? That, that's a nice sweet spot. And then and, and, and having three, right? A table of four, that's just a nice, you know, there's one conversation happening. It's just... And it, you know, it's just like like magic. And then when I became CEO, even more important, because as CEO, right, you've got uh, every organization sort of like in this triangle below you, and you got everyone like uh, shareholders and board members and founders, the triangle sort of above you, and you have some triangles coming from the side, like press and analysts and vendors and other people, and you're just kind of getting cream from all sides. And so the only people who can appreciate. Uh, your particular brand of misery and loneliness <laughs> uh, or other CEOs. 
so when I became CEO, uh, the same guy, Eric, who hired me as CFO, also fired me as VP of sales and then hired me as CEO. Life is crazy. Uh, but he said, look, you got to go to this CEO training program down in Santa Monica, you know, every 90 days for the next three years. And I'm like, so you want me to go to the beach every 90 days? <laughs> to be uh, I'm in, you know, I like the beach. I love Colorado, but, you know, if I can, if I, have to, if I have to commute between Santa Monica and Boulder, I can swing it, right? This yeah. sounds yeah, good. Yeah, it's not terrible. It, yeah. it was fantastic because we would, uh, again, it would be like you know, 30 people who were CEOs would get together on that, you know, Thursday night or Tuesday night and you know, have dinner. And then like on Wednesday, there'd be like a program. We learn like good content about, you know, how to run your life or run your company better or whatever. But it's mostly just, you know, being there, having, you know, three cups of tea with other people who aren't emotionally in your drama and you're doing the same for them. Right. Because they, right. they, oh, my co founder, oh, my, you know, VPs or oh, my shareholders or oh, my whatever. Right. My big customers screwing us up. My partner stealing our, whatever. It's just, you don't have a dog in a fight. So you can be like, oh, well, you know, you know, and, and they do the same thing. So, so helpful. So I ended up doing that for seven years. What was the uh, just, program called? Called Strategic Coach. Um, Interesting. Dan Sullivan out of Toronto. Actually, it's the headquarters. I just like to go into the Santa Monica chapter. <laughs> I'd rather do that than go to Toronto. Um, but I actually hit a few of their few of the things. It was it's great, um, yeah, content. But you think that the, so much value is in that network uh, of the people that, uh, that you, and there's other programs around town, but uh, that have different sort of structures. Right? I think you could almost kind of roll your own by having these sort of like lunches if you need sort of. You know, more tactical, um, you know, advice about uh, uh, various things, or just yeah, having some other yeah CEOs to lean on that are in your um, in your same boat. So yeah, if you have that people side, and then having some structure around you know reading lots of books. And uh, I worked at uh, uh, Michael Tognetti in-house counsel for a long time, uh, so he was key part of my management team through a number of companies, and so I brought him into Sengrid. And uh, everyone's like, oh, why are you bringing in, you know, counsel? And it's like, just, I'm tired of answering that question. Just trust me. And it was, like, oh my God, he's amazing. But part of the role was I wanted him to be an example for, to show how to manage me as the CEO, because I had some great VPs that Brad Feld also put in there directly or indirectly. And so it's like, I didn't need to come in and change house, but it's like, people knew how, how to work with me, right? Like, uh, and this guy worked with me for so long, right? Back when I was a founder, you know, in 2000, right? He was at Cooley. Uh, as a green attorney, he was on our account. And so, uh, and he, one of the things is, oh, you know, sometimes Jim read books. You know, Jim, Jim will be on a plane, read a book. And then when he lands, like your inbox fills up with a bunch of shit. <laughs> and he's like, just ignore it. And, you know, people generally don't feel comfortable, you know, a VP ignoring some CEO's email, right? But that is exactly the right advice, right? Just ignore it, right? If, if it doesn't make sense or you think it's a good idea, you know, whatever, right? just do what you want to with it. Um, because that's just Jim sort of like, you know, doing his process of learning a bunch of stuff. He always falls in love with the latest thing, right? He read this book, right? Or whatever. He met a candidate. Oh, it's Hiram, right? Just, so, you know, just use time and space as a filter. And if he's really serious about something, he'll circle back on it. And, you know, but <laughs> I can just imagine Michael saying, like, trust me, he won't. He never does. Because he's on to the next thing, right? He's like, I got a little founderitis, you know, <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, but he was a great example you know of, you know, how you manage me and so that everyone else would be like oh okay we shouldn't freak out when Rinbox fills up you know in the middle of the night because he landed in some plane somewhere and just like oh now i've got all this junk uh, that, I'm that i'm supposed to go do is that reprioritize stuff no uh we could just do whole call on sort of 
you know, CEO, you get the loudest and longest, you know, longest rise and loudest voice. And that's something that's hard to learn. Uh, because if you've kind of gone up the ranks, you want to have a loud voice, you want to make an impact, you want to go do stuff. But as a CEO, every time you speak, you make policy. And right. so I remember one time with Sengrid, and uh, I go to the California office where all the technical people were, and uh, I flew back, and there was a big kerfuffle about we just changed direction. And the product management team's all upset because they had backlog grooming sections, they set all this stuff. And some engineer said, Jim said X. And I'm like, I don't know what I said. <laughs> I don't know anything about technology. That's not my thing or product. And so I would literally like read like USA Today and like uh, the Anaheim Angels. And I'll talk sports and weather, right? That's I'm, it's like safe territory, you know, cultural <laughs> stuff and that money, you know, sale. I get that. But like, uh, I'm like, no, no. Yeah. And, and Isaac, too, is a founder, right? And so we ended up hiring a VP engineering and kind of ran that. Like Isaac, you can't just sort of say something because you have so much power inside a company is, is a founder status. Then people are like, oh, we're gonna go add this feature. Like, no, 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 that's what product does, right? It's like we have people for that now, right? It's like we can't just you know do a hackathon to you know change something around. It's like, well, you know, there's a process now uh, for that. So yeah, as organizations grow or your career grows, it's it's that can be a tough thing to to realize. I used to love going to marketing meetings. This was a decisioning, and I talk about pricing. Pricing is always hard. Never has it you know right you can't, and and what I found was uh, if I said anything in a pricing meeting, it stopped conversation. People would just pick up their pencils and write down the quote unquote answer. Well, Jim said, well, I don't know the answer to pricing, right? It's just a good intellectual wrestling topic, right? For how do you, you know, price for value and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so I stopped going to marketing meetings. I felt like I, I was hampering the conversation. So then people are like, oh, well, Jim doesn't care. <laughs> oh, yeah, so it's like, you know, welcome being CEO, right? It's like, you know, it's just... Uh, just like travel, right? You kind of feel like you're always everywhere and people think you're never anywhere. You're probably doing it about right. You know, because if you have multiple offices or constituencies you need to deal with, uh, you'll be, you'll be moving around a lot. Interesting. So I, I guess then it sounds like a, you wish you would have learned a bunch of this stuff that you sat down with people that were 10 years older than you in your MBA program. Is, is that fair well, to say? Uh, Learning that particular technique <laughs> would have been helpful. All uh, right, sort of like a it's like a life skills class <laughs> would have been good. I had a uh, you know like my last semester of the MBA program, we had a Wednesday night seven to ten seminar, uh, basically on great books taught by a PhD in Shakespearean literature in the MBA okay. program, right? right. And um, Professor Shaw and um, Gary Shaw, and it's like I remember him saying, you know, he's like, look. Business is all about people. If you get the people part right, you know all the spreadsheets and market plans, all that stuff will will take care of take care of themselves. And if that is probably the punchline, I wish I would have appreciated when it was told to me. <laughs> yeah, okay. the first it took me uh, ten years later. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, let's get the people eleven years. You know, let get the people part right by getting good on your own values, what they are, how to interview for them, how to you know, teach them, promote them, change them, scale them, all that stuff, uh, which is what I think I've sort of learned from 03 forward uh, to now is like that has been like, oh, I've kind of figured out that piece so I can know like who, who would be a good co-founder for me? Who'd be a good investor for me? Who would be a good VP or employee? Who's a good partner? Who's a good customer? You know, and just if you have this sort of fundamental values alignment, uh, much like Lencioni wrote a whole, you know, all this stuff sent around, you know, it kind of summed up a book called Organizational Advantage. It's like, Having a healthy organization does a lot of good things. I thought of it way back, like, oh, three, it reduces friction. Because if you're arguing about, 
you know, uh, what should our option policy be or what should our option refresh policy be? You know, that to me is not a good argument. It's just like round the employee's favor, you know, put it on the you know, right side of generous. Let's make sure people are, I'll steal this line from Godfrey from Hyperion. He wants his people happy and excited. Every time we talk about the acquisition, he isn't super involved. He'd say, are your people happy and excited with the outcome here? And I'd just say yes or no. And if it was no, he'd say, you know, where are we, where are we missing you? And I'd say, well, we got this going on or whatever. He'd say, oh, okay, how do we address that, right? Because, and I've used that so many times in the M&A context as a board member or just other times. It's like, yeah, I want uh, our employees, I want the joint entity, I want them to be happy and excited. It's segment. We send up partnerships with, you know, Rackspace and IBM and Google and Microsoft. And we wanted those partners to be happy and excited to be sanguine partners. We would uh, we would design our partnership so it fit their model, right? Do they no, need to make a certain gross margin on their channel? Then we will fit it in so they're making their gross margin on our sale through their channel. Uh, Rackspace didn't care about that. Rackspace just wanted to have more servers under the management. So they wanted us to run sanguine infra infrastructure on Rackspace. Well, that didn't make technological sense uh, to do, but I'm like, fine, we will buy Rackspace servers. Right. And you'll have more servers. I imagine you want to tell people we run production on them, you know, you know, I'll do a hand waving around that. Right. What does production mean? Right. You can have a listing post, some servers that picks up email and sends it to San Jose where our main, uh, we had our own data center. Right. Just it was hard right. sending sanguine mail. Um, it just didn't port very easily to other things. But for, you know, a reasonable amount of money, you know, five ish, 10K a month, we could buy a little pod of Rackspace servers and have them pick up mail and just be a relay station to the big, the big machine that did all the work, right? And then uh, that was sent off to the customers. But yeah, okay, that was part of our production. You could say that, but but they got a fixed contract because we were going to pay for those servers, you know, even if no Rackspace customers ever use SendGrid. Uh, but we got all the revenue, uh, you know, from the SendGrid customers who signed up to Rackspace because we wanted, you know, we wanted direct access to the customers, and so we got that, and so we could customize that. You know, for each partner because we wanted that to to work for them uh, we had the luxury of a big ba balance sheet uh so that was nice but i think even if you're uh in a in a tight situation if you always have that perspective of like rounding another person's favor it's like it works out well you know for you in the long run or even the medium run right it's just like being around uh, people that have that similar um uh, viewpoint no i i think that's actually really good advice but we're sadly out of time. I'm sure we could probably go another hour or two with, with a bunch of stuff, but how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about you and uh, anything else you want to mention? Uh, yeah, well, the best way, uh, I, uh, pretty active on Twitter, uh, 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 at Jim Franklin on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, it's uh, linkedin.com slash n slash Jim Franklin 08. Uh, and then, you know, best way to reach me is via email, uh, jim.h.franklin at gmail. Uh, if you want, uh, you know, follow up on particular uh, topics or uh, reading lists and uh, that sort of thing. But uh, I am now uh, sort of on the, I hate to use the, the R word, finally the retirement side and as an LP in uh, venture funds around Colorado. Uh, my wife and I, especially like the back first time, uh, VCs like Natty with Matchstick uh, Ventures and Matt with uh, Springtime, uh, Fletcher, uh, Cocapelli, uh, that kind of thing. But we'd love to uh, meet with startups and help people uh, point them in the right direction, either doing intros to VCs uh, or uh, you know team members and other things uh, that might be helpful for them. 
Perfect, Jim. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Jim, I thought that was really good. How would you feel about that? <laughs> yeah, I thought it went well. I got my AirPods uh, actually connected right uh, just as you were doing the intro, so hopefully all the audio went smoothly. <laughs> no, I think it's good. Uh, the nice thing is I record my audio locally too, so I should – it should be fine. There shouldn't be any uh, issue. But, but yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I have my uh, sort of this curriculum I'm working on for this spring uh, thing over at School of Mines. You know, sort of in front of me. Like, yeah, we hit about 10% of it. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's, good. A, that's in cool. an hour, 40 minutes, or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. That's cool. So, yeah. yeah. Wish you luck with the uh, with the program. Yeah. Thank you. Sounds, sounds good. And we'll. Well, we'll post this episode on there and I'll send it out to you when it's there and you can check it out and give some thoughts. I actually love your opinion on Learner. Yeah, absolutely. So. All right. Cool, man. Thanks I'll so have, much, a, have a good rest of your day and we'll talk soon. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Oh, what a great interview, Kevin. Um, that was really interesting. One thing that was interesting just that I, that I thought of is, uh, is his, his, view of the growth of the bc scene from the 90s to today and and how much that yeah. has exploded um also just his his insights his his journey with sent with uh being the ceo of sengrid and and uh how he got hooked up with that was was really interesting um i think that's uh there's some great lessons in there i was also really i was kind of taken off guard but it makes sense when he talked about you know these sort of can things that you can can read in a plane ride or listen to in a plane ride or a long drive as as uh, you know sort of great learning resources and you know there's a there's a truth to that. There's, that's a, a really nice size of things to be able to uh to be able to digest and to share um and using those times uh, are are really great so when you have that bit that bit of space where you are kind of a captive audience what do you do with that time i i love i love that idea of you know using the time on a plane or time in a, in a car driving uh to to be learning and that's one of the things actually that's super useful with learner for our with our app to be able to find those kinds of resources to fit those those spaces in your life i thought that was pretty cool yeah and then also how he how it's important to meet with with other people and and share yeah. ideas and learn from them and and so other ceos other managers mm -hmm. love it thank you for tuning in to the learner.co show if you're looking to be a guest try out our app or want to get in touch please visit learner with two l's at www.learner.co the music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Thanks for listening and keep on learning.